Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Forjack Podcast. Our guest today is originally from South Africa, but now resides in Victoria, British Columbia, based out of the Bear Mountain Golf Resort. He is the head coach of Golf Canada's national junior team, a former PGA of Canada Teacher of the Year, along with several BC PGA Teacher of the Year awards. This was a great chat with an even better guy, so settle in and enjoy the interview. Cheers. Welcome to the 4Jack Podcast. <laughs> Welcome back to the 4Jack Podcast, brought to you by Jackson Labs. Another day, another little visit into the lab, and another day with my man from out west, Mr. Parkinson. What up? What's up, boys and girls? Happy to be here. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Should be a fun one tonight. We have a very special guest, an old friend. Uh, yeah, looking forward to this podcast. It's going to be a fun one. Yeah, speaking of, our guest today is the coach of the Canadian National Junior Team, Mr. Robert Ratcliffe. How are you? Gents, thanks for having me on. Nice to have you on as Thanks well. Thanks for being here, yeah. And didn't mention as well, he's also working out at Bear Mountain, with a lovely spot down in Victoria, which Ooh. I would love to be at right now, to be honest. Yeah, I can't complain too much. It's a pretty nice spot to hang out. That place has been under some serious development over the last few years. They've really sunk some money in there with some trails and, and a whole bunch of stuff. What's that looking yeah, like? We've got all kinds of things happening there. I mean, it's it was like a big master plan that was put into place. I don't know how many years ago and it's, you know, it's slowly but surely built up. It's, it's real estate, but it's, you know, the, the owners have a, a real kind of keen to make it like a, uh, I want to say an activity center. So we've got, you know, we've got the tennis, the golf, we got mountain biking, there's trails everywhere. There's, you know, different types of activities that are, are happening. We have a lot of events that uh, we host, not, not right now, but, you know, uh, last year we hosted the Canadian National Boxing Championship, which was kind of fun. They they set up center ring right on the tennis courts, so oh, wow. kind of fun. Um, That's really neat. Yeah. I last time I was out there, we so in my my real life, I work for a company that sells food, and uh, we had done some business with the chef up there, and he was telling us that the west the, the hotel property is actually separated from the Western Banner, and or something to that effect. And they're really looking at doing some big development, putting a pool down in front and, and things like that. Yeah, so. So hotel is, is currently uh, separate from the golf. And okay. you know, the hotel has big plans. They're going to make some changes here soon and it should be interesting. It should be fun. Like that. But before we dive too deep into what you're currently doing, why don't we go all the way back? Uh, you're originally from South Africa. would love to know, obviously where you're from, how you got into the game and what the, the landscape looked like down there when you were, when you first started. Yeah. So, uh, I, I grew up in a town called Germiston, which is just outside of Johannesburg and, uh, Germiston is also Ernie Els's hometown. So it was mm -hmm. kind of, you know, it was a bit of a golf or he was definitely a celebrity in the, in the neighborhood, so to speak. So, um, you know, I, I started, well, I don't know, late, late eighties, early nineties, um, you know, when I was younger and, uh, see what really got me into it wasn't Ernie Els. 
at the time there was a tournament that was called the Million Dollar Sun, uh, the Sun City Challenge. This place out in the bush called Sun City, gambling location, a bit like the Las Vegas of South Africa. And uh, they had this tournament for a million bucks. And it was on TV one day. I saw this this uh, pro by the name of David Frost. And he won. And I thought to myself, hey, that's not bad. I think uh, I'll do that. You know, win a million bucks. Why not? You know, back, you know in, easy. back in the day, a million dollars, that was a big deal. I mean, it was a million huge. dollars or a million rand? Uh, I think it was dollars. So nice. it was even more impressive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's huge. Huge bank. Yeah, so uh, that kind of was the spark. And uh, it wasn't long after that that actually uh, my parents uh, moved us to the UK um, when I was about 12, 13. And actually, so I did most of my golf in the UK. Um, it was uh, a little bit of Lynx golf and, and learn how to, you know, play that style of golf where you shape the ball and, you know, I got wooden-headed clubs and this kind of dates me a little bit here. So wooden clubs and, and a lot of balls and, and uh, you know, you had to really be able to manipulate the ball a lot. And uh, so I played my amateur golf there, turned pro, did some mini tour stuff, um, and then, you know, kind of phased out of that, got into coaching. That's kind of when I, I came out to Canada. And uh, I remember the first game of golf in Canada, I played with uh, Lindsey Brunikiewicz, who's now the head pro of Victoria Golf Club. And Lindsay at the time was, uh, he was on the UBC golf team. And so I thought, okay, good play. You know, we'll, we'll head out there. And it was him and a couple other guys from UBC. And I couldn't believe how they just hit it high and they hit it straight. And I thought to myself, you can't play golf like that. You know, you can't, you, you gotta be able to, gotta be able to hit draws and sling fades and, and stuff like this. No, these guys hit it high and straight. And, and uh, you know, soon, Within a couple of months of being there, I realized why there's no wind all summer long. They never play in the wind, and so they're kind of spoiled for choice, uh, spoiled for conditions. And so my whole game had to change just to just to learn how to play, you know, the softer greens and and more manicured uh, conditions compared to you know the UK where it's kind of firm and fast in the su- in the summer and cold and blowing in the in the winter. How did you find that adjustment, like? Normally it's for, I mean, for us, it's usually the other way around, obviously like hitting it high all the time and then figuring out how to hit it low is so difficult. Like how did you find that transition? Yeah, I actually struggled with it to begin with because um, it was just more natural for me to get the, keep the ball low and get it on the ground, you know, and especially around the greens, uh, bumping it into the fringes and you can't do that here because you bump it into the fringe here. They're so well sort of uh, irrigated that the ball just stops. So you're like an idiot when you leave it halfway there. Yeah. You plug lie off a chip shot. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it took some time, but uh, figured it out. Nice. You also had a pretty good career playing MasterCard Tour over in UK. How did that sort of take shape? Uh, yeah, it was okay. I mean, so towards the end of the amateur career, I, I turned you know, I turned pro and, and, and qualified for that tour. It was just a mini tour. Um, I think it's now called the Euro Pro Tour. I don't even know if it's still going, but. Um, yeah, it was fun. Learned a lot. Actually had a, a really good first year. And then after that, uh, not so great second year. And then the third year was, okay, let's stop messing around here. Let's get serious. Got serious, worked my butt off and went out there and it just did not happen. You know, it was one of those things. It just wasn't coming together. So, um, right about that time I was getting more experience teaching and then starting to mess around with that and 
decided that that was, you know, a little bit more, I was having more fun teaching than I was playing at that stage. So that's, that's what got me into it. And at the time I was like, you know, I'm going to teach for a little while and then I'll get back to golf. Well, I haven't really got back there yet. So. <laughs> Champions tour now, I guess. Eh? Yeah. I think you're doing okay where you're at right now. I also remember something you said a long, long time ago about the, the PGA over in the UK was sort of like to maintain your card. It was something to do with having to maintain some kind of playing handicap. Is that, yeah. that's still kind of existing or do you, do you remember we, that conversation? Yeah. I mean, every PGA sort of qualifies their people slightly different. Um, when I went through it in the UK, you had to have a, a certain handicap as an amateur to, to even get in the door. And then once you're in the door, you had to kind of prove it. You had to play a minimum of 10 events a year and you had to average, I think you had to average 73 or better for the 10 events, you know, and you could kick out your worst one and replace another one. There was, there was a, some buys in there, but, you know, the guys were the guys who were qualifying as PGA members in the UK. They, were, they could play. Yeah. yeah, I think there'd be a lot of guys out of work over here in Canada if they had to do that. Ooh. Half the pros. Yeah, a little shot softened thrown there. Softened up a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we've kind of moved from the Mastercard tour. We've now moved in, moved to Canada. You moved straight to British Columbia then from the UK. Yeah, I did originally. Um, I was in the Vancouver area. I, uh, I worked at Fraser View, which is a public oh, yeah. course in Vancouver. And it's a good track, too. Yeah, Fun it's one. a good track. And uh, it was it's the busiest course in Canada. I mean, they did the most rounds. I, I, I still think this is probably the case. But, you know, the time that I was there, they were pulling 90,000 rounds a year. It was ridiculous. Oh, it was ridiculous. I mean, we, we had, we had uh, the tee sheet started at 6 a.m., you come in at 5.30 for your opening shift and there's a line of singles at the door waiting for you, you know, just to get on the singles list. And you wouldn't stop calling the tee until 7.30 at night. That's insane because like, there's courses in the States right now, like obviously with things opening up, they're, they're hearing that they're 25% up right now in rounds and they're expecting to hit like 75, 80,000 rounds. And that's a full yeah. year. Like to hit yeah. ninety thousand. Well, yeah, I think I think Fraser was a thirty dollar green fee, and it was it was a good golf course. I mean, we're we're talking a few years ago now. I'm sure it's yeah. probably changed a little bit, but it was fun times. No, kidding. I kind of That's... learned that I, I didn't want to be in the shop. I knew that much. <laughs> yeah. I didn't last very long in there. I didn't have the patience for it. It's a little hairy when there's lineups and people are upset because you can't predict the weather and you can't make the golf course go faster. And yeah, I remember those days working at Victoria and Edmonton. It was like. I don't have a crystal ball and I have no magic powers. I can't help you, man. It just gets yeah. a little hairy for sure. For sure. Yeah. So that, that got me, you know, really into, into the teaching even more. So I wanted to, you know, make teaching pretty much the, the number one income and uh, be able to live off that. So I got pretty serious about learning, you know, learning more about the, the, the sort of different, not just the swing itself, but, I mean, beyond the swing, you have to then learn how to convey that information to a student mm -hmm. and, uh, and started uh, really committing myself to, to that. And that's kind of how I got really going with teaching. So we've kind of had a um, semi-student of you on before, Casey Johnson. He kind of discussed his program that he gave, and it was what Parksy said pretty much bang on to yours. I'm sure that he picked it up from you as well, from your coaching but explain the program that you give to your students now that is quite a bit different than what most teachers are offering at most clubs. 
Well, uh, you know, I, I actually listened to, to the podcast with Casey and uh, I, I think a lot more of the sort of full-time teachers, coaches are moving in a direction of, of saying, you know what, I'm not going to give you a single lesson. We're not going to spend even three lessons uh, because a lot of people don't have success that way. They, they uh, you know, whether it's through their, through no fault of their own, sometimes it's just, they'll come for that one lesson week one, go away feeling pretty happy about it. The coach goes away feeling like, yeah, we had a good session. I'm excited to see, you know, Mr. Jones next week. And next week comes along, you're excited that Mr. Jones is coming back. You're expecting him to say it was great and it was awesome. And he had, you know, he had a great time. And then you ask him how it was and he'll say, well, I struggled. I, I had issues with this, I had issues with that. And what you start realizing is that what's happened between the session and, and in, inside of an hour or less, and it's actually fairly easy to get someone hitting the ball better because they're getting constant feedback. You're right there. As soon as they make a small little error, you can correct it. You know, so they're getting that instant feedback. Um, when that feedback is gone, then what's happening is you're relying on how much did they retain from that session. And, you know, we go away. We don't have perfect memories. We, we, we sometimes misinterpret what was said or, or we forget a few key points that was said. Uh, and, you know, you can kind of get lost. And, and then they come back the next week and had a go. No good. And then you realize that, well, that's why they missed certain things or they weren't practicing the right way. You know, that's a, that's a big um, factor is, is how do you practice for improvement? And so it wasn't a great model. Um, so the model that we're moving towards, and I think as an industry, we're kind of slowly getting there. Uh, we're moving more towards this model where it's a, a, a greater, a bigger program. It's spread out over a longer period of time with more contact. Okay, so instead of just three lessons, well, you're in for three months. And in the three months, we're going to see you two, three times a week, maybe more. Um, and it's a combination. It's not, just, it's not just instruction lessons all the time, but it's also practices, it's supervised practices. So Coaching. the athlete, I call them athletes, when they come to a practice, practice is laid out in a certain structure. You know, there's a warm-up, there's a what we call work segment. And then there's a random segment and, and they do different exercises in those segments. And that allows us to control what's actually happening with the student. And because, you know, Mr. Jones had an a instructional session on Monday, but we see him again on Wednesday or Friday or, or Thursday, there's not enough time has passed for them to get lost. Mm -hmm. You know, so we're, we've got multiple touch points that allow us to, you know, really sort of help the improvement along. Um, and it's been it's been good. It's been very successful. We're doing it. We're doing it. You know, definitely at a junior level. Um, you know, here at a, at a club level at Baymont, we have junior academy that we're we're doing along those lines. Um, we're also doing it with adults now too. Uh, not not quite the same model, but very very similar. Yeah. Would you can Would you consider that more of like a player development program? I remember we we spent some time together a long long time ago. We won't go into dates, but. Uh, I remember that was that was a really sort of a turning point for me as far as approaching the game and thinking about it after I left the golf course, just developing those skills and really committing to a, a process, but not just going out and banging buckets, like yeah. having some kind of fundamental value on what I'm trying to you know, achieve with my practice and things like that. So 
Yeah, yeah, and and it's and it's definitely it's evolved, you know, uh, since those times as well. I've learned I've learned a lot more about the coaching process. Um, I mean, with our with our junior academy, we have in the course of a year we schedule over. I have to do all the math, but we have well over two hundred fifty hours worth of time scheduled in the year, you know, specific to practice and coaching. Um, you know, we do that in groups, uh, where it's more of a fun, competitive training environment. Um, but it's, it's really worked. And from the player development, you know, what you mentioned about player development, what does that mean? That's just not just swing, right? Swing's one part of that. And it's an important part, you know, technical, technical aspects are an important part of golf, but what's way more important is, well, can you make that three foot putt, you know, and what's, what's the three foot putt got to do with putting technique, uh, and then, you know, getting up and down, uh, you know, around the, the short game green. Yes, there's a technical component, but there's also other components to that. There's the physical, there's the tactical, there's the, you know, mental aspects. And, and those are the types of content that we try and cover, whether it be direct, you know, hey, we're talking about this tonight, or indirect, where you just, you know, throw in a, a line every now and again that's got something to do with that, that they don't even know they're learning about. Are you guys incorporating nutrition and physical fitness and things like that into that program as well, trying to develop the players at a young age with those sort of fundamental values? Yeah, with, definitely on the physical side um, because, because the way kids develop, you know, uh, throughout their, say, from the age of 10 through 18, 19, with all the growth that happens, there's certain windows of opportunity that, you know, you can really take advantage of a, of a speed burst. Uh, you can get a lot more speed at a certain, there's a certain window where that's more applicable. And there's other windows where it might be more applicable to do strength training. So that's something that you can take into account. You know, the nutrition, the nutrition, is, I mean, even, even the physical side, we're still, we're still, what are we? We're probably 20, generously 20 years into physical training for golf. Um, so it's still relatively in its infancy. We're still learning what that means. You know, what is, what is fitness and golf? What does that mean? Yeah. Uh, so we're still learning about that. And then, you know, on the nutrition side, are there any specific things that we really need to learn there? I'm not too sure. I think, you know, we talk about good habits. We talk about specific things that you could do, you know, on the golf course, prior to the golf course, um, with the competitive athletes, when they're playing all summer long, we, we talk about it a bit more, not, not from specifics. You need to eat this and you can't eat that. We don't do that, but more from the fact that, uh, you know, you're playing six weeks in a row and you play that first week and it doesn't really matter what you eat. You know, the first week your body's not going to feel it, yeah. but three weeks, four weeks later, if you've been eating junk, well, you start feeling it. This sounds like the Scott Stallings story, hey, Pace? Yeah, seriously. It's interesting yeah. because we had Scott Stallings on, and I don't know how much you know about Scott Stallings. Obviously, you know he's a PGA Tour player, but he's had a huge body transformation transformation in the last few years. And he talked about actually going to source doctors that would review his blood tests and physical conditioning for years upon years and trying to find that perfect algorithm where he knew he would peak at. And it's interesting to see how deep he really dove into that and what it's really translated to. Like, it's just, 
you think that's craziness, but I mean, obviously these guys are athletes. They want to perform at their peak level and they're trying to find every resource that'll give them that advantage. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, at a PJ tour level, I mean, those guys are, they don't want to leave anything off the table. So they'll do all the research. They'll figure out what's right for them. I mean, one of the, one of the world's best guarded secrets was Tiger Woods work regime, you know, 10 years ago, what was he doing? No one knew. Um, uh, but you know, because we're dealing mostly with, with teenagers, uh, you know, and, and on their, on their way up the ladder, it's, it's a little bit of, you know, basic education rather than getting too specific, you know, it's, can we make baby steps? Can we, can we get better? Um, maybe think about that, maybe skipping that fast food joint on your way home tonight. Well, especially on the nutritional side, I mean, even players like Justin Thomas have mentioned that like he will use his caddy to kind of be like a little mini nutrition nutritionalist while he's on the course. Like, and I'm sure kids forget to eat when they're playing, they're having fun. Like they're focused on it. And it's like, Hey, you're six holes in maybe have a handful of almonds, like something, just keep that energy level up. Like, cause you're going to forget. I do it all the time. I constantly forget to eat. And then I get to 14. I'm like, Oh my gosh, I think I might pass out. Yeah. And I think competitive golf, I think drains you probably a little bit more than, sure. than, you know, when you're just playing with your buddies on a Friday afternoon too. Um, definitely, definitely mentally taxes you and, and the, you know, the athletes typically get there a couple hours before the tee time you know, an hour and a half before there's the build up, the playing of the game is five hours long. Then after the game, you know, they're still hanging around another hour and a half afterwards, just doing a little post round of practice before they get out of there. It becomes a long day, you know, and if you're not fueling yourself and, and looking after yourself, try and do that four rounds, five, day, five days, six days in a row with a couple practice rounds and then several weeks in a row. Yeah, definitely. You're going to feel it if you're not looking after yourself. Mm -hmm. it, it sounds like you're really promoting, you're really promoting intention into your practices more than just like, here's a quick fix. Here's a little program. It's like, no, let's set the intention for each one of these goals. Do each one of these exercises and just focus on that instead of the result. Instead, like, let's focus on your one bit of intention here. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, we've got this idea of periodization, which which breaks down the competitive schedule or the competitive year. Um, and you think about our, our season in Canada, our competitive season starts, you know, May in some areas, maybe June in other areas, um, and goes through, you know, the end of August. And so there's a lot of time, you know, to, to build up to that period. And then there's time after that period where you're still actively playing golf. So you know, it's, it's what, um, what do you do? When do you do it? Uh, so, and that's the same from the, from the coaching and teaching point of view. It's, uh, when is it okay to teach a particular piece of content and, and when is it not okay? And, you know, so we, we make a good point of delivering or sorry, writing up plans, uh, a year plan. And we do this with our national team athletes too. And in that year plan, we basically stagger out what we're going to do uh, to make sure that it's happening at the appropriate time. So, you know, if we're going to make a, a you know, reasonable technical change, well, we can do that in the off season because at that stage, we know they're probably going to take a step backwards in performance, um, but it's okay because it's the off season. It doesn't really matter if, if they're not shooting great scores. 
um, or hitting the ball that well. But then as we get closer to a competitive event where we want to ease off on that type of, of coaching and, and training, we want to get more into uh, competitive exercises and, and, you know, exercises that force you into focusing more on tactics and strategies or, or appreciate routines and, and mental game and things like that. So, you know, it's appropriate content at the appropriate time. And, you know, when we're in the middle of the season, uh, July, August, when they're trying to play a USM or a, or a US junior, they don't want to be thinking about fixing their slice at that time or, or that fade. You know, they want to be just working on uh, some small little things or working on tactical um, ideas, uh, yardage books, preparation, just getting ready to go perform. Mm-hmm. So as you alluded to there, um, Canadian national team, juniors, how did you get involved with that? Um, how, who did you speak to to kind of put, get your foot in the door? And like, how has that process gone for you? Yeah, so actually this, this, I had my time, I spent some time in Alberta around between 2004, 2006. It wasn't a long stretch up there, um, but I was at a red tail landing. That's how I got to, that's how I got to meet Chris. Uh, and, um, you know, it was fun times. I was really kind of stepping up the, the teaching game at that stage. And I started doing some, some work for Alberta golf. I actually worked with the provincial uh, girls program. And uh, after a couple of years of doing that, that a position came available as the assistant coach on the women's national team. So I applied for that, um, ended up getting that. And, you know, that was 2007 at that stage. Um, and then as years have gone on, that role has, has just kind of increased. And, and um, I started out as, I think, a 40-day contract with Golf Canada back, back in those times. And then it pretty soon turned into a full-time position. Um, I switched over from the women's team to the men's team in 2012. And I've been with the men's uh, mostly ever since until very recently. Um, Mostly working with the juniors. uh, And my colleague, Derek Ingram, works with our amateur and our pro teams. Uh, And it's, uh, yeah, it's been great. I've had a, you know, had a good run and and lots lots of fun times, a good great bunch of athletes along the way um you know they, they kind of come and go out of my program how and, exciting i'm going to interrupt you real quick how exciting is it to be with a group of guys that are like on the brink of taking it to that next level it's got to be pretty cool to see some of that talent sort of evolve yeah yeah it is and uh you know it's great to be a small part of that you never know what part you're going to play because generally when they come into our program they're already very good good yeah uh, They've done a lot of work. They've they worked with a lot of good coaches over the time. Um, you're not, you know, they're not coming to you at that that level, and you know, all of a sudden you're going to make a twenty percent difference. Uh, you're looking to make a a point five percent or a one percent difference that can help them, you know, save one shot in seventy two holes. Um, and you know, that's that's a lot of fun. And just yeah, the environment is is great. We try and create that that sort of culture of excellence within the teams. Um, we've had a lot of good examples over the years that have, that have gone on to, to do some great things. And, uh, you know, we always refer to those examples of guys that did it the right way, you know, Mackenzie Hughes and Corey Connors and, and, and you know, Brooke Henderson on the women's side. Um, so we've got some good role models 
And, uh, you know, the guys are always fired up. They're, they're fired up when they come into the team. They're happy to be out there every day. They, they enjoy, enjoy grinding. And the, the nice thing, particularly on the junior team for me, is that everyone's training upwards. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind That's of a good. fun position to be That's in. That's job security, right? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, in a, in, a, in a certain sense. I mean, but uh, it comes with its own comes with its own challenges. But but yeah, generally, it's a it's a great role. What does the travel schedule and play schedule look like for you guys? Are you, are you on the road quite a bit? Is there a lot of events in Canada, or is it global, or or what does that look like? Yeah, we've become we've become fairly global. I mean, on a, on a typical year, you know, excluding this one, um, I was before we so we centralized the team in 2018. Uh, so before 2018, I was away well over 200 days a year. Um, wow, from home, which you know, which is tough. Family, wife, kids. Uh, so there was a lot of travel and a lot in the U.S. Um, a lot of international events, depending on the year, different events come up. Um, then we centralized the program with the junior team. We centralized the team in, in 2018, uh, which changed the model slightly. So, so the way we have it now is team selected in September. We do the fall season on a training camp basis. We bring them to a training camp once a month or, or you know, excluding December. And we'll do that in BC until the weather gets, you know, kind of crappy. And then we, we find a location in the U.S. And then February 1st, or just before that, we bring the squad, uh, the junior girls and the junior boys uh, here to Victoria. And so from February through June, they are, they are staying here. They're full time here and uh, they go to school in the morning. Um, we have a, a local school that, that we work with. Uh, they do their studies and then they're out, you know, to practice in the afternoon. And, uh, you know, February and March are our sort of preseason months. And then we get into it towards the end of March for the first tournaments uh, where we, you know, we're traveling away with them. And then around uh, end of June, it typically coincides with when the World Junior is. The World Junior is usually that third week of June. So after the World Junior, We'll send them home because at that stage they're going to merge. You know, they're going to uh, sort of merge into their summer schedule, which is their home provincial tournaments. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, U.S. Junior, U.S.M., Canadian Am, Canadian Junior, and then the summer stretch. The summer stretch. You know, I'm chasing them around wherever they are. Oh, wow. What is um, like? Obviously, your your program is going to be a little bit different for a 35, 40 year old adult. What are the techniques and skills that you kind of inherited to working with juniors that have worked really well for you like do you change your attitude do you change your approach with them or is it is this an eva question i feel like this is an eva question. it could be an eva rogers type question <laughs> well um generally Highly touted juniors yeah the, the juniors generally have way more time on their hands yeah <laughs> you want them to do so so the you know, we have to be a lot more efficient with adults. Um, you know, with the junior, you can take on a bit more of a project and, and say, okay, we want to make some significant improvements and that's going to require, you know, a certain amount of work, both technically and physically. 
And we can kind of go down that route without too much fear because we've got, you've got time to do it. You know, they're still growing. You pick up things a lot faster when you're younger. Um, you know, with adults, we have to be a bit more uh, to the point. You know, what is actually going to make a difference? And, and this, is, this is an important distinction because to make a change to a swing just to make it look better is not going to make any difference on the scorecard necessarily. You know, so we have to identify, okay, what's actually going to make the difference to this guy's or lady's game? How am I going to take, you know, two or three strokes off a round? And so you, you got to take time to kind of understand what's happening with that, that person's game. Is it, you know, they're losing strokes because they're not hitting enough greens? Is it off the tee? You know, is it because they're not chipping it close enough to make that putt? Or is it the fact that they're just not making that putt? Um, so you've, you've got to get a bit more into it. And then, and, and then, you know, even once you identify, okay, it's yeah, chipping's the big red flag. Well, what about it? Is it technical? Is it tactical? Is it physical? Is it mental? And we, you know, as, as, as an industry in the past, I think golf teachers have always sort of just bolted to that technical component, which is easy. Yeah. You know, it's an easy one to go to because we all like technique. We all like talking about angles and, you know, things like that. Um, but very often it's the, it's the other three that makes a big difference. You know, that's where your biggest return on investment is. So with an adult, you've got to kind of narrow it down a bit more and say, okay, we're going to attack it that way. And we know that doing going after that particular aspect is going to make an instant or very rapid improvement on that person's game. Mm -hmm. I got to know, as, as far as our listeners are concerned, I mean, we have a wide range of handicaps out there, I'm sure. So if somebody was looking to do some improvement on their own right, what would be the best sort of self-evaluation process they could go to the golf course with and maybe identify some of the areas that they need help with what what's sort of sort of some structure that they could utilize to to sort of find that i think you have to identify um you know if you look at a typical round of golf identify where you lose your shots uh you know whatever your handicap level is there's there's going to be an area of the game that's costing you more than other areas now you know it might be off the tee uh you know you hit a big hook and, and with that hook, you end up in the water more than you should and, or in the trees, you know, and then that's something that you've got to look into and say, okay, well, what about what is happening when you hook the ball? Do you hook it every time? Because most people don't. Most people hit it reasonable and then the odd hook, uh, and the, the odd bad one comes in there. And then I want to understand, okay, well, on the bad one, what's different about the bad one than the regular one? And we start getting into you know, different elements then because the default reaction is I'm hooking the ball. I got to go to the range. I got to fix my hook. But if it's not happening every single shot, then there's, then that might not be necessarily the fault. You know, when you, when you start taking a deeper dive, it's like, okay, what happens on that ball, that shot, when you've just hooked it in the bush. And as, as you start taking a bit of a deeper dive into it, rather than just defaulting to technique, you start understanding things like, well, you know, I, uh, I kind of rushed that swing. Okay, well, why did you rush that swing? Um, maybe I wasn't sure about the club I had in my hand or, or, you know, something in the process of standing up to the ball bothered me, got in the way of the pre-shot routine, um, 
forced me to overthink, you know, what was happening. Uh, we got too many, too many cogs turning in the, you know, in the head while you're standing over the ball. And, you know, when you, when you can get, when you can start boiling it down to those things, those things are a lot easier to fix than a, than a technical hook. You know, something caused the bad technique. The bad technique was the result. It wasn't the cause. So you've got to take a bit of a deeper dive into, you know, what happens. And that's why very good players, um, you know, when they get down to a decent handicap, when they hit the odd shot, they're not really, the odd bad shot, they're not too bothered by it. You know, the the reaction is, oh, I've got to go fix that. Uh, It's, yes, it's an issue, but a lot of the time it's something else that is a little bit simpler fix that caused that. It can be resolved on the go. Yeah. you speak about someone oh i hooked my ball i need to go fix this well how is like technology kind of made a difference in that now because now players are like oh i could just change this with my club and i could kind of maybe fix that around like that yeah get the wrench out yeah like you see sorry i just want to jump in like you see these players now coming out on tour like matt wolf and victor hovland and like they're ready to go right out of college it's like i'm going to build my swing and the equipment just going to follow along with that. I'm going to build the equipment for my swing. If I do this, I can just change my equipment to fit that. How has that changed your approach as well? Like, yeah. So, so the equipment's come a long way. I mean, don't get me wrong. Yeah. From the persimmon and the balada. Yeah. yeah, It's pretty awesome stuff now. And, you know, I just, I just went through this uh, fitting education thing with Titleist and it was, it was, pretty awesome. It was like, wow, I can do that. You can actually make that kind of change. And, and, uh, so the answer is yes, uh, to a point. Yes. Yeah. If, if someone is, uh, oh, a technology and, and teaching, there's so many tools now. I mean, we got, you know, track man's flight scopes, foresight, launch monitors. We've got biomechanics, things to look at like K-Vest and, and, uh, my swing. And, uh, I can't remember the other one now. There's another one. Um, we can look at what's happening in the ground with a body track or a swing catalyst force plate system. You know, there's, there's so many things you can analyze. You got supercomputers making Maverick drivers. Right. So, so, so there's, but there's good and bads to it mm-hmm. because so many things that you can get into. Again, it's about identifying, well, which one's the most important and which one is going to be giving you the best return on investment. Um, and that's, that's a bit of a, you know, that's, I think that's where maybe the, the better teachers are a little bit uh, more clued in on, on that. And in terms of they can identify quicker, which aspect to go to first, you know, which technology to use. Because one of the dangers about technology, you know, particularly with, with the athletes that I work with, if you let them kind of free spin on the track man they'll be there all day and they'll get into every single number in there and they'll drive themselves crazy that's why i avoid it and i just kind of slap it around anyways but yeah it's got to get to a point (laughs) where it's like okay man this is like information overload here let's get our numbers let's try and optimize our equipment for our game but like let's not let the box tell me how to swing the wrench right like that gets you're still gonna get the ball in the hole yeah at the end of the day right Robert, what's your what's your take on literature out there? Are there any books you would suggest to our listeners? Is there anything that you really sort of relate back to? Nothing, nothing in particular. I just uh, 
you know, my my typical reading that I do is is more around coaching itself. Uh, so I, you know, I read to like other sports. I, I, I kind of study other sports, not the sport itself, but just the coaching in the other sports. So I, you know, I just got finished reading a book by Tom Coughlin, the New York Giants, the former head coach, and and pretty cool to see, you know, how football organizes itself around coaching. Um, you know, there's so much written about golf. Golf's like one of the most written about sports. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's every book under the sun out there about putting and chipping and, and all this good stuff. They all fail to mention where, where a lot of them tend to fail is there's the theory and then there's the practical application. And the practical application is where, you know, it becomes tough. Um, because a certain book might say, hey, on, a, on this particular shot, lean the shaft forward. And then so someone reads that book, they go out and lean the shaft forward. But then the book fails to mention, well, you know, lean it forward, but at the same time, do X, you know, or something else. And that's where that coaching aspect comes in. So having that, having that eyes and having you sort of help navigate, having them navigate you through it is, is a big deal in my opinion. What's your take on recovery and, and, and rest and downtime and things like that? Are you familiar with the Theragun at all? One of our guys is on a golf course. He just shot me a text. He says he, he's got to ask this question. So um, Theragun, he's a big proponent of that and, and the recovery process. What, what's your take for the team and, and downtime and stuff like that? Yeah, I, I've heard about it. I don't know much about that particular product. But when we, when we talk about rest and recovery, we basically – uh, you know, at a national team level, we can measure it from the point of view of pluses and minuses. So for every stress that is put on an athlete, there has to be an equal and opposite uh, positive to cover from that stress. So, you know, a stress might be um, uh, playing a round of golf. Well, there's five hours on the golf course uh, under, you know, physical uh, quarterbacks. Yeah, yeah. So for that five hours you spend out there, you're going to have to have an, another input to recover from that. So that input takes the form of, you know, your nutrition, your meals, your sleep, um, what you do after the round, what you do pre-round. Foam rolling is a big thing with our national teams. Uh, they all travel with a foam roller. They all have a routine. Um, so that's a big component. Uh, most of them, you know, because they're, they're teenagers, they tend to sleep a little bit more. They require nine, nine and a half hours uh, a night, whereas adults, we tend to need a little less. So, you know, there's, that's a big uh, factor. The other thing that we tend to have to deal with is time zone issues, you know, traveling across time zones. So we have certain protocols in place for, you know, when we travel to, let's say, Ontario from the West Coast, a three-hour time difference, well, what is the protocol for that? If we're going to the UK, that's eight hours. What's the protocol for that? So there's a, there's certain, a couple sets of keys that you do leading up to the day of travel and then a, a, you know, a few keys you do when you get on the ground to help you um, get ready to go, go and play. Yeah. Uh, to kind of go a different direction here, and I know that I'm sure you don't have all the answers to this, but in regards to the national team coming into say your your season do you see it happening with all the travel and everything going on like 
is it going to stay within the country? I, I can't yeah, imagine you guys leaving. Yeah. Yeah, we're still navigating through that. I mean, yeah. you know, like we, we suspended our program in middle of March and uh, we've been we've been basically just working with the, the guys and girls remotely since then. And, and some of them have had access to golf and some of them haven't. Um, you know, we, I, I gotta be honest with you. I'm getting, I'm getting a little sick and tired of zoom calls and I know the, I know yeah. the kids. Uh, so are we. Um, Thanks for your time tonight, by the way, on the yeah. zoom call. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we, we've been doing a lot of that. Um, but now as we, you know, everyone's getting excited, we're getting back to golf. Everyone, all the golf courses across the country are now open. But now it's like, okay, well, what, how do we go from having a golf course open to actually now running a tournament? And, you know, it seems like every day is a bit of a roller coaster right now. We get some good news and then we also get some bad news. And yeah. it seems like things are moving forward and then you hear of another tournament being handled. So, you know, as of right now, we don't have anything scheduled before July 1. And um, there's a few events in July that have been canceled and we're just sort of, waiting to hear updates day by day as to what July and August might look like. Good. Yeah. Well, I don't want to go too deep into the the depressing things that we don't all know the answers to, but uh, I got to ask this. I mean, I'm sure there's got to be a lot of kids coming to you saying, Hey, I was on YouTube last night and I saw Gankus teaching this. Should, should this be something I should be working on? Like how, how much are you getting this? And like, what do you think of like the new age type of training? So like a guy like Gankus. Yeah, I, I actually, believe it or not, I don't get a lot of that. I don't know if kids are watching that stuff. Yeah, I don't know either. I get to see a lot of adults coming in and saying. Yeah, that. I think it's the adults, you know, yeah. when, when we're, because we're, you know, when you're an adult, you're not, you're a golf fan as well as a golfer. Mm -hmm. So as a golf fan, you want to see golf content. So you go on YouTube and, you know, up pops and there's this guy, he's got lots of life and colorful and, you know, there's some good stuff there. It's, it's really good stuff. Um, but I, I don't know if the kids have got, you know, they're, they're, they want to watch other things. They want to watch cat, cats falling off TVs and stuff like that. I mean, you know, that's what Parks yeah, watches. The guitar. Yeah. Robert, what, do you, what do you do in your downtime? Let's get away from golf. What do you like to do to disconnect? What's, what's your fun time? Your away time? Uh, well, um, I'm, uh, definitely, uh, definitely dad mode when I'm home. Uh, you know, I like to get, uh, different projects going around the house. Like, you know, I had, uh, during this time that we've been sort of downtime with COVID, I have built myself a shed at home, pretty proud of it. Nice uh, 12 by 12 shed that's going ha happening in my yard right now. Um, nice. You know, we've been slowly renovating our, our house uh, last little while. So I, um, yeah, fancy myself as a bit of a handyman. But uh, other than that, come the, come the off season, I'm a big NFL fan. Uh, go 49ers. Niners. So, uh, yeah, big Niners fan. I have been for a long, long time. So that, that helped get through the offseason. There you go. Got to ask, have you played Tobiano and Kamloops? You know, I haven't. Uh, and and Shall we I know there's a lot of good golf courses in BC, but when, when they're open, I am too busy to get up there. I need exactly. them to be open when I'm not busy, which is... Winter. Um, yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. We got to ask one of your wow factor stories from your travels or your playing or your experience in golf. What, what was the coolest thing maybe that you've seen or experienced? I don't know. Um, yeah, it's it a bit of a tough one. I mean, I've definitely seen, seen some, a lot of 
cool things in golf. I mean, a lot of a lot of the the athletes that I work with have been the sort of the highlight. Um, you know, I was trying to think back. Uh, one of the one of the sort of best experiences we had was at the 2012 uh, World Junior, which was in uh, Nagoya, Japan. And uh, it was a great team, actually. That, that year, I had a team of uh, Adam Svensson, uh, Kevin Kwan, who was a two-time Canadian junior champion at the time, uh, Riley Fleming, who's uh, from... Stick. Yeah. And oh, yeah. then uh, Blair Hamilton uh, from Ontario. I think Blair is now playing, you know, mini tours and, and, and doing that stuff. And, you know, that was a fun week. We, we came second. Uh, it was a silver, silver medal behind Australia who ended up beating us in the last round. We were actually leading going to the last round, but, uh, you know, Australia was a pretty stacked team. They had all the goss, uh, Virat Bandwa, who went on to be a Stanford star. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, one of the stories I tell from that is, is Blair Hamilton. You got to get Blair on the podcast one day. You're going to have a, a great time with him. Um, you know, he, uh, he's a bit of a clutch guy, uh, particularly the bigger the occasion, the more he steps up and, and uh, I love the fact that uh, it's one of those tournaments where a coach can actually coach during the event. So, you know, you meet the players on every third or fourth tee box and, you know, how's it going? Good, good. Uh, some of them wanted to know where, what the scores are at. Some don't want to know. Um, and, you know, it was pretty tight on that third round. We were pretty close with Australia and, and Blair stands on the 15th tee box, which is a long par five. And he says, how are we doing? said, well, you know, Blair, we, we're going to need a strong, a strong finish. And, and he looks at me dead in the eye and says, all right, I got this. And he goes and proceeds to go three under par in the last four holes. Just clutches up <laughs> big time. Talk about turning it, it on. A, yeah, it takes us into a, a two or three stroke lead after the third round. And then, and then the fourth round, you know, Australia having this huge surge um, and coming back at us looking scary same tee box exact same thing happens again rob what are we where are we at i said boy we need a, we need a big finish <laughs> gotcha coach i gotcha three under par last four holes boom again you know he, he just clutched up big time Stud. Off, unfortunately but uh wow an absolute star and that was a, that was a fun team to be with um and Spenny's a good player too like i mean he's done well on corn ferry he's and not bad. Yeah, like he's gonna he's gonna be he's gonna be somebody to watch down the road here for sure. Yeah, watch out for him. He's gonna he's gonna win on PJ Tour one day. Yeah, he's sneaky. He's sneaky. Yeah, yeah, he's 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 solid. He's solid. Um, I did uh, I did a when I was I don't know if it was the year after you were at Red Tail Landing, but uh, you know winters in Alberta, I didn't know what to do with myself. So um, none of us do that. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> because I wasn't familiar with, with being in Alberta, you know, from South Africa and then the UK, not taking the, the winter off ever. Uh, I remember them saying October 1, I said, what are you going to do for the winter? And, and I, I, what do you mean, what am I going to do for the winter? It's like, well, you know, we, we'd be lucky if we get to Halloween. Are you kidding me? Hanging out, hanging out with rumps for four months. <laughs> what are you talking about? So, uh, so a friend of mine, um, who's a PGA member in the UK, he was uh, running a course in Egypt. And uh, I remember this. Yes. Yeah. He says, "You want to, you want to come over for the winter?" I said, "Yeah, I'd love to." So I went out there and was teaching there for the winter. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I guess it happens like once every twenty years or something. If the conditions are 
uh, right in the Nile, the Nile River. They get locust swamps, uh, you know, big, huge grasshoppers. And the year that I was there, it was perfect, perfect conditions for this. Um, and what they, you know, it's the desert. So what do they eat? Well, they eat grass. So they oh, no. only green piece of grass in the whole country, which is the golf courses. Oh, so, you know, I, I remember the day before the superintendent comes running up the hill to the golf shop and, you know, he says, you gotta, you gotta get everyone ready for tomorrow. There's going to be a locust swarm. And yeah, yeah, whatever. Well, don't worry. Windows closed. Don't worry. We got it. Anyway. So the next morning, Pat golf course, sure enough, about 10 AM comes storming up the hill. They're on their way. They're on their way. I just got a phone call from, from down the road. I'm like, okay, well, get everyone off the course. So, I'm, I'm, you know, Egypt at that time was uh, a lot of expats. So I'm trying my best, like, Portuguese and French and Spanish to try. You know, Sunday is the golf course. Merci. You got to get off the course <laughs> right now. There's a, there's a locust swarm coming. And I got to the high point of the golf course, and sure enough, looked down in the valley across the desert. Huge black cloud. Huge black cloud. Holy shit. course. Within a few minutes, I'm looking up in the air, and I'm seeing these giant bugs the size of my hand flying around. They decimated that golf course. No way. Oh, oh. Well, they start out red, and when they eat the grass, they turn green. Shit. Oh, yeah. Wow. So, you know, we had a green golf course, and like two days later, it was, there, was, there was no grass on the course. Just toast, hey? What an experience. Wow. How did everybody react on the golf course? Are they like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Or are they like, oh, my God. Yeah, no, they, they you know, what are you talking about? I'm, I got three holes left. Yeah, yeah. Dude, I'm 300 par. <laughs> I'm going three deep in the next four here. What's up? Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's hilarious. Yeah, that was, that was interesting. It was interesting seeing them trying to fight the bugs off the course. You know, they're trying oh, man. to out their tires burning. They had all kinds of stuff going on. Oh, my gosh. Good work. Wow. So you obviously decided that you don't like winter. You chose Victoria. What, besides the 12-month season and clearly semi-decent weather, what made Victoria the right spot for you and your family? Um, well, you know, I originally, when I first came to Canada, I was in the Vancouver area. And, uh, you know, Vancouver's great. Love it there. Super busy, you know. And, and when we decided to move from Alberta, it was... We kind of want to go to BC. But we want to be in a nice place to bring up the kids. Uh, they were still young at the time. Uh, we want to be able to get them on the, you know, on the golf course if they want to play golf. So Vancouver's not great for that, and and or in our opinion, uh, you know, particularly you're fighting you're fighting for tee times and, and stuff like that. Most golf courses in Vancouver. So you know, Vancouver Island was that better alternative. Um, you know, we moved here in 2007 and I've been here since and just love it here. Yeah, it's not a bad spot, that's for sure. I mean, you have tons of golf and, I mean, this, the city itself is beautiful, so. Sleeper community, maybe the property value is a little bit more digestible over on that side of the mm -hmm. world. I mean, Vancouver is just beyond ridiculous right now. It's it's just... Yeah, well, you know, being, being in Edmonton, it was... Um, I don't want to beat up on you guys too much, but... but was like even shorter for a teaching pro because you only had till September. And uh, if the Oilers made the playoffs, forget about it. It's like it season didn't start till July. <laughs> and unless you got one of those three jobs at a golf town, 
you weren't really training. Yeah, in yeah exactly. Robert, where's the best place for uh, our listeners to find you and have access to Robert Radcliffe Golf Academy and that kind of thing? What are your socials? Uh, so on Twitter and Instagram at Radcliffe Golf, um, I'm slowly getting into it. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm one of these, uh, you know, reluctant uh, social media guys, but my my daughter is she actually runs the University of Hawaii um, social media. Uh, she's out there on a golf scholarship. So she's been doing a lot with their communications department. And she's like, That's okay, great. dad, we're going to get you at least into the 2000s. <laughs> so you're going to start doing some stuff now. That's really cool. Awesome. Well, we don't want to take up too much of your time, Robert, but we really appreciate you sitting down with us tonight and just uh, having a little bit of a deep dive on the swing and everything that is BC and Canada golf. Thanks very much, guys. I appreciate it. Awesome. We're definitely going to make our way out to Victoria and uh, try and get some of that Radcliffe money on the golf course. So be prepared for an invite for a tea time here. Soon. Let's do it. <laughs> Love it. Well, thank you so much, Robert. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care. Thank you. Hello, 4Jack Podcast fam. It's your boy, Actor of Nation, and thank you for listening to the 4Jack Podcast. It would mean the absolute world to us if you could go hit that subscribe button and leave us a lovely five-star review on the Apple Podcast app. You know what? Because that would really make our day. Thank you, and let's keep on golfing, baby. I kind of like that last one. Okay. Then we're good. Got it.